This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. The legends are true! But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Friday, March 1st, 2024. On today's episode of the show, we're going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about Denis Villeneuve's new movie, Dune Part 2. My name is Ben Pearson. I am an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor and chief film critic, Chris Evangelista. Hello, Ben. How you doing? Oh, God. <laughs> we're off on a great foot, Chris. I love it. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's dive right in here. Uh, give me your general thoughts on this movie, specifically compared to the previous film, and then we'll get into some more detailed stuff in a little bit. You know, I liked, I gave it a positive review on SlashFilm.com. I think I like the first film more, but I appreciate this one more, if that makes sense. I, I think the first film is more um, entertaining, I guess, for lack of a better word, and this film is, is more... Uh, challenging it's 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 really dark it's really bleak for a block like for a big expensive hollywood blockbuster this movie is is really um uh, unpleasant um I, <laughs> did you did you already say we're gonna get into spoilers because we are gonna get into spoilers, yes right? oh yeah 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 like the the ending especially is really like um like i i am not well versed in the lore of dune i've never read the book i've seen the david lynch movie so I, I know what happens, basically. But, um, you know, the the end of this movie basically says, like, everything you thought you knew about this main character, this, the, you know, Paul Atreides, Timothy Chalamet's character, is kind of wrong. He's kind of an asshole. You know, he's kind of been corrupted by, by you know, becoming, you know, this messiah. And he's willing to launch a holy war that kills uh, millions of people just so he can get what he wants. And that's a really, like nasty thing to end your big Hollywood blockbuster with. So I'm, I'm kind of impressed that this movie can get away with doing that. And I also wonder if that's going to like fly over the heads of people. Cause like I, I tweeted like, I don't want to, I don't want to like make it sound like everyone's an idiot and only I am the smart person. But <laughs> like I tweeted out that like, after I saw the movie, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm 
I'm surprised at how bleak this ending is. And some jack off immediately came into my mention. It was like, how is it bleak? He, he wins in the end. I'm like, were you like not paying attention to the mm. movie? You idiot. Like, yeah, he wins in the end, but he wins by literally like launching a holy war. They literally say, Oh, a war is starting and millions of people are going to die. And like, if that went over your head, then I don't know what movie you're watching here. Like, yeah. This is not a happy ending. Like, it's it's happy ending for Paul in the sense that he gets his revenge and kills the people who you know he kills the guy who got who killed his father and he makes the emperor pay for you know ordering the 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 massacre and all that stuff. But this is not a happy ending. This is not a you know, no one no one really wins in the end here. And if that, mm-hmm. if you don't get that, I don't know. Maybe you were looking at your 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 telephone or something. I don't know. <laughs> and especially with the Chani thing at the end too, where you know I, I feel like you're really supposed to be on her side throughout this movie, and she does not react well to Paul, you know, making that sort of um, strategic political decision at the end to basically marry Florence Pugh's character specifically for you know having control and becoming the new emperor and all of that. So like she's she's not pleased with that, and I think you know, we as the audience are, are supposed to be on her side and not pleased with that decision either, really. Um, so yeah, I mean, for me, like this movie feels like I first of all, I loved it. I thought it was great. And I, I had read the book. So I knew what was coming. Um, and I also I kind of agree with you, Chris, that I think the uh, at least reading the book, the first part of the book, which is basically the first uh, Villeneuve movie is more entertaining, because it's like, setting the story and you've got Duke Leto and you've got Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho. And you've got these like sort of more fun characters. And the back half of the book is very, I mean, this is a very um, accurate adaptation in my memory. I read it a few years ago, but the back half of the book feels so much more claustrophobic because uh, Paul and his mom, Lady Jessica spend a lot of time in these sort of underground um, Fremen communities. And it, yeah, it just feels more sort of like the walls are closing in around you as he, uh, uh, assimilates into this culture and learns their their ways and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then it sort of explodes out a little bit at the end. And uh, and yeah, we'll talk a little bit here in just a minute about like what the movie did well and what it did not so well. And I think, um, yeah, maybe the, the pacing is one of the things that we'll get to in terms of like, I guess, I guess uh, might be like, a, I guess a, a downside or something of this movie. But um, okay, so so in terms of what the movie did well, were there any things that I guess jumped out at you where you were like, man, they're, they're handling this, you know, quasi difficult material pretty effectively. Is there anything that jumped out at you? Uh, the thing, you know, from a, from a technical standpoint, this is like a, a marvel of production design. Like everything here looks amazing. Everything like Villeneuve, um, he's, he's really good at scale. This was, this was true of the first movie too. And of also like arrival is another example of this. He's really good at conveying scale, like making things look humongous and overwhelming. Like there's that shot at the, it's in the trailers, but it's near the end of the movie too, where a bunch of like the, the emperor's soldiers or guards, whatever you want to call them, are like looking at this, this swirling sandstorm and out of the sandstorm, all these giant sandworms burst forth. And like seeing that in a theater in in IMAX and like a big screen, I was like, holy shit, this is like scary looking like to see those (laughs) worms like burst out of the dust and they're like moaning or making, making the the worm sounds, whatever you want to call them. (laughs) Uh, Like, so like from a a technical standpoint, this is like uh, really just top notch and just overwhelming. And uh, uh, you know, the costume design is great. 
Uh, from a casting standpoint, everyone here, I think, is pretty well cast for their particular roles. Um, some, you know, a lot of people, some people have less to do. And so, you know, like Florence Pugh's character really has absolutely nothing to do with this movie. She mostly just stands around looking kind of worried uh, and wearing, wearing cool outfits and, and headpieces <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. But, like, you know, technically, from a technical standpoint, everything here really works really well. And, um, uh, just from like a, um, I guess I'm getting into things that don't work. So we're talking about things that don't do work. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna stop talking right now. Okay. Well, I think uh, the idea of re- uh, religion as a means of control, I think, was like really effectively uh, handled in this movie. I think I, I was th- I was trying to think of like other mainstream movies that sort of tackle that concept. And recently, I watched Ken Russell's The Devils for the first time, which I know is not really like a mainstream movie, but that definitely. Uh, that theme definitely comes up. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master came to my mind. But in terms of like top tier A-list blockbusters, I couldn't really think of any other movie that takes that position as strongly as this movie does, where like they explicitly say that like the concept of a messiah was made up and like planted by the Bene Gesserit. And, you know, it, it's all about um, controlling the Fremen people and like, uh, you know, this could last for thousands of years or, or longer kind of thing, you know, just like promising a Messiah and people will wait for that to happen. And it's like so clear, um, you know, the, the real world parallels that Frank Herbert was drawing on when he wrote that book. Um, and I just thought it was like a bold uh, stance to take in a major movie like this. I mean, the whole film to me kind of feels like a movie with no studio notes, which is just a really rare thing to experience in today's landscape. Like I know it's not, ideal to kick another movie while it's down, but coming off of Madam Web in particular, which felt like nothing but a collection of studio notes, this was just incredibly refreshing on that front. So um, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that or like the, the movie's handling of religion or anything. Yeah. Um, it, it's definitely like a bold thing again for like a big blockbuster to take this stance on religion and, and basically be like, it's fake. Like religion is not really like the only other, like other than those movies you example, like, you listed like there's this. I don't know if you ever saw. There's this Ricky Gervais movie called The Invention of Lying. Did you ever see that? I heard, yeah, I heard about that. I never actually watched it though. Like that movie, it's set in a world where no one can lie except for one guy played by Ricky Gervais, and his lies basically invent religion, specifically like the Catholic religion. And like I don't love Ricky Gervais. He's he's kind of a hack now, especially like his whole his whole shit now is like, oh, did I trigger you? Like, yeah. right, like <laughs> sit down, idiot. But um. Like that movie is basically like the rigid, the reason religion exists is because of lying. I and I was like when I saw it, I was like that's kind of bold to make a movie about that, whether you like Ricky Gervais or not. And this movie kind of feels like that. It's nothing like that movie, but the movie's stance on religion is similar to that, where it's like it's all made up and we're hmm. we're exploiting it for our own needs. And like yeah, it's kind of um. I'll, I'll use the word ballsy. Sure, let's yeah. let's call it ballsy to make a movie like this. On and again, I do wonder if that's going to like go over people's heads. Like if they're just going to be watching this for like the spectacle. Like I'm I'm here to see giant sandworms, and that's it. And like I don't, I do wonder if that's going to like fly by, and people are not going to really. Not that it's like subtle at all, but you know, people. Is it rude to say people are idiots today? People are idiots today, Ben. I don't know. People like, I feel like, especially when it comes to like media comprehension and media literacy, like people don't understand how to watch things. And I do really wonder if this stuff is going to go like fly over their heads, even though it's not subtle. 
Yeah. Um, okay, so I, I was thinking about the humor, and I think the first movie is like relatively humorless. I mean, not to the point where I thought it was necessarily like a that it was detracting from my experience of watching it. Um, but I thought this one was like pretty actively funny in points. Like, there's that moment where, um, and I think uh, Javier Bardem's character Stilgar gets a, a, you know much more of a um, I don't know like a, a like an infusion of joy and, and sort of um, energy in this movie. He, he pops up briefly in the first film, but he's much more uh, of a major player in this movie. And there's that scene pretty early on where uh, Timothy Chalamet is basically saying like, Hey, I know that there's this prophecy. Uh, I don't think I'm the Messiah. You know, I, I would like to just learn your ways and fight alongside you kind of thing. And um, Stilgar has basically just been like hyping up, uh, Paul to his people and saying like, look, this is the Messiah or whatever. And then Paul says that thing. And then like Stilgar sort of like pulls his people off to the side. And he's like, look how humble he is. That's, that's yeah. exactly what the, uh, what the real, you know, Messiah would actually say kind of thing. And just like the, um, I don't know, the, the positioning, the, the juxtaposition of, of those two things and like the, uh, the editing of that and the, his delivery and everything. I just thought it was very funny. I was like laughing out loud in the theater when that happened and nobody else was really laughing, but I just thought it was like, Villeneuve having some fun and and trying to um underscore the that sort of religious theme and like the the um the way that like the fundamentalist characters kind of uh are just like all in on on Paul as their their savior so uh were there any other like humorous moments that stood out to you or what did you did you do you uh, agree with me that this, this movie is a little bit funnier than the previous one I do think that scene in particular is funny but I do find these movies to be very very humor. They're very humorless and they're very sexless. And I'm not saying like I want everyone to be running around boning in Dune, but um, like everyone in this movie is really hot, but they feel like very <laughs> like I don't know. It's like I don't know. Just make movies horny again. That's all I want. Can we have like yeah. a horny Dune movie? Can we make Dune three horny? I don't know. I don't know how you do that, <laughs> but just find a way. Like I I don't know. If you're gonna fill your movie with like really good looking people, there should be like some weird horniness going on here and i don't feel that at all in these movies like they're they're very chaste they're very uh you know you know just, just give me some horny horny sandworms that's all yeah, I is, that, yeah. is that too much to ask for I, I don't think so there's that one i think implied or strongly implied sex scene between paul and shawnee where like they wake up afterwards or, or we cut to them afterwards and they're talking about you know uh paul's visions and, and things like that. But yeah, there's, there's not really much of that in this movie at all. Um, we talked a little bit about the scope, so we don't really need to go over that, but just like, yeah, incredible stuff. Um, again, very similar to the first movie in terms of like just the production design in this world sort of stretching on and on and like, especially the desert scapes and stuff. You can tell that this stuff was actually shot in real locations instead of just, you know, using the volume or whatever. Yeah. It does um, not look like an MCU movie, which is refreshing. Yeah. It's great to have a movie with actual locations. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that I wrote down that the movie did really well was action, but I think we can talk about that a little bit later when we get into some more specifics, but um, yeah, let, let's talk about what you didn't think it did super well. And I, I read your review, which I will link to in the show notes. And um, yeah, we sort of alluded to it before, but like the pacing of the movie, um, I think because it is just an adaptation of the back half of the book, uh, it, it it didn't really move in the same way that the first movie did. So what did you think about like the, the way that information was doled out and the way that the story was told? You know, I actually thought the pacing was okay. I, I honestly knew it was never like, boy, this is dragging. But the biggest problem I have with this film is also like the biggest problem I have with the first film is that it's half a movie. And I don't mean 
because this ends with sort of a cliffhanger where it's like, oh, there's a war starting and now the movie's over. I mean that like this movie doesn't exist without the first movie. And that really bugs me, even when it is a trilogy. Like I feel like some of the great trilogy, like, like the Godfather, you can watch the Godfather part two without having seen the first movie. Like it helps to see the first movie, but obviously, obviously it helps to see the first movie. But like, if you were like a crazy person to be like, I'm going to watch the Godfather part two first, you would get, what was happening. Same thing with like the Dark Knight trilogy. If you sat down and watched the Dark Knight without watching Batman Begins, you would understand what was happening. And this movie, if you don't watch Dune Part 1, and obviously you're going to watch Dune Part 1, like, you know, I'm not saying like you should sit down and watch this on your own, but uh, I, I, it really bugs me when movies are not complete. Like, can I have a complete film? Like, same thing with the Dark Knight trilogy and same thing with the Godfather trilogy. Like, the Godfather Part 1 is a complete movie. Like, yes, it keeps going, but if you only watched that first movie, you would get a whole movie. If you only watched Batman Begins, you would get a whole movie. And the Dune movies don't work like that. Like, you you, you have to keep going. And that really just bugs me a little bit. I mean, I guess the only, like, similar example, not the only, but the one that springs to mind is, like, Lord of the Rings trilogy. But even those feel kind of complete like the fellowship of the ring ends with you know sam and frodo continuing on but that still feels like a full movie it feels like it has an actual end point and it just really bugs me it's just like i don't know like does that bug you at all ben or am i like crazy no it does i I think there are like many arcs especially in like fellowship right like there are many arcs that these characters undergo and it feels satisfying when you get to the end even though the larger story obviously continues and i think dune and and dune part two to a lesser degree just like the the arcs um are interrupted it feels like by the end of the of the by the splitting of the movies a little bit so yeah um yeah it's it's like a um it's almost like an imperceptible you can't quite put your finger on exactly why it is kind of there i can't anyway but it's just like yeah something that's sort of in the background that that definitely uh stands out so i know where you're coming from there one of the things that i thought the movie didn't do so well. And I was trying to think back. It's been, I think three or four years since I've read the book at this point. So I don't really remember the, the details super well, but um, this movie, you know, Timothy Chalamet's character, Paul Atreides is very worried about going to the South because that's where all the fundamentalists are. And there's like, I don't forget the number that they say something like millions of Fremen um, who are just, you know, uh, raring to go basically. And he doesn't want to go there because he has these visions that if he does, um, he's basically going to start, you know, kickstart this holy war. And I was wondering if you know who the holy war is being fought against. Like, who is he worried about that war uh, being waged upon? I just assumed it was like the rest of the galaxy. I, I agree that it's not very clear, like what they're talking about. Like, I, I just assumed it was like because at the end they're like. What are they like the spacing guild or something like that? They're like they reject your yeah because at, at the end Paul becomes he doesn't become the emperor but he becomes something he becomes like whatever and they're like they reject he, or is he actually becoming I think the he emperor? I think he does yeah because he makes Walken like bend down and kiss the ring right and stuff. And he's like I'm gonna he's... marry your daughter or whatever so I guess he technically becomes the he wants to become the emperor and they're like. Everyone else rejects you as the emperor, Paul, and he's like, mm-hmm. "Let's fucking go to war, baby." Yeah. And uh, that's a, that's the actual quote he says. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so I just assumed it was like war with everyone else, like everyone else in the galaxy, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Like the, the, um, the great houses, I think they're called like all show up on the planet Arrakis and, uh, because they, they'd been like called in basically. And they are the ones who Josh Brolin says like, you know, the great houses don't accept your extension or ascension to the throne or whatever. Um, and so he's like, yes, let's take them out. But like, they're there on that planet. Like, do the Fremen have access to space travel and like ships and stuff like that? It seems like they're kind of like a more um, stripped down society that doesn't, I don't, I don't know, maybe they have the capacity to, um, to build that kind of technology and they're just being oppressed by the Harkonnens and have been for so long that they, have been driven underground, but like now that the Harkonnens are taken care of, they can return to, you know, the, the way of life that they once had or something like that. And then maybe like, yeah, continue out among the stars and, and uh, wage that Holy war against like any, any other planet or anybody else. But anyway, I just thought it was like a little unclear about uh, why Paul was so scared of this because the people that he sort of, uh, commands them to wage war against at the very end are like literally on Arrakis or, or at least like in the uh, atmosphere or something. They're like, you know, the, those uh, uh, great families or, or royal houses or whatever have arrived there. Um, right. You know, so anyway, just a, just a thought. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk about like the performances and some of the specifics of the movie. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay, uh, Timothy Chalamet, what did you think about him, I guess, in comparison to his performance in the first film? You know, he's good in this. He's, um, I'm not like Timothy Chalamet pilled. I don't think he's like a particularly great actor. I think he's a good actor. I think he's a good actor who will one day be great. I, like, the comparison I can think of is Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio did not start out as a great actor. He was just a really good-looking guy who was pretty good at acting. And I feel like as he stretched himself and took on work with other filmmakers, you know, like Martin Scorsese and stuff like that. He like blossomed into a great actor. And I would consider Leonardo DiCaprio a great actor today compared mm-hmm. to what he was when he started his career. And so I feel like that's what I think of when I think of Timothy Chalamet, where he's a good actor who could probably be great as he continues. Like, I don't even know how old he is. He looks like he's fucking 15 years old every time I say <laughs> so but I just feel like as he gets older he will turn into a, a great actor but um he definitely has more to do he his, his character has more of an arc in this in that he goes from like being this he, this reluctant messiah to like all right I'm just gonna embrace this you know so I can get what I want so he does a pretty good job here where he has to like especially at the end where he has to become like a, a jerk for lack of a better term so I mm-hmm. thought he was pretty good 
Yeah, I liked him a lot in this as well. Um, did you see Wonka yet? I did. I just watched it. Yeah, so I, I think that's a good example of him sort of spreading his wings a little bit and maybe stepping into like a different phase of his career after like the sort of uh, like Lady Bird, um, Little Women, like, you know, it seems like he was kind of in that in, in a certain zone for a little while. And and now he seems to be, yeah, spreading his wings a little bit and, and uh, stepping into different types of roles and stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where he goes from there. What did you think about Zendaya? Obviously, she was only in the first movie for like five minutes or something, but uh, she has a lot more to do here. What do you think about yeah, her character? She's good, too. I'm, I'm glad she actually has something to do in this because in the first movie, she mostly just like looks around and hangs out in the background and she has uh, a pretty good arc here too, where, I mean, she's still sort of relegated to being, you know, the girlfriend and uh, you know, she's like the supportive girlfriend who's supporting the man. And I, you know, I just, it just like comes with the territory of this kind of material. But uh, again, at the, like, I feel like everyone gets their best work in like the last like half hour of the movie and, or the, like maybe the last hour of the movie is when like things suddenly turn and everyone has a lot more to do and a lot their characters have to like sort of grow and and suddenly shift the perception of what we thought of them so Mm. yeah i I did like her she does a lot with like she does a lot with like just glances here like a lot of like non-verbal acting where she's Mm -hmm. like looking on where especially at the end where She's just like, God damn it. <laughs> She's like, I was, I was all in on you, Paul. And now you go and you, you do this shit. Like the, the part where he's like, I will marry Florence Pugh. And it cuts to Zendaya. And she just looks so like, what? She yeah. Just like, has like that she's look punched in the stomach or something. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, that's brutal. So yeah, she's, she's really good. In this. Yeah. Uh, so you have an article going up on Slash Film probably by the time people read the, or, or listen to this called uh, Dune Part 2's Biggest Weapon Isn't a Sandworm, It's Christopher Walken. So tell me what you thought about Walken in this movie. Yeah, man. When they announced Christopher Walken was in this movie, I was so excited because I love Christopher Walken. And uh, I was just like, hell yeah, to see him in like a big blockbuster like this. That's exciting. And, you know, his role, it's not a big role, but he's such a good actor. Um, I say this in the piece I wrote, but I feel like we sort of take Christopher Walken for granted like, like, like he's sort of like Nicolas Cage in that he's become almost like a walking meme. Like when you think Christopher Walken, you think of, you know, the the way he talks because everyone has their own shitty Christopher Walken impersonation. Everyone does that, you know, that I'm not going to do one, but everyone has that. Increase the production of Spice more deep. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Very good. Like everyone has that sort of like, when you think Christopher Walken, you think of the way he talks and, but he's so much more than that. And in, he has such like gravitas and he has such like a, a old school sort of acting style where the scene, like at the very end, he and Timothy Chalamet have like a scene where they sort of face off and he just like wipes the floor of Timothy Chalamet without even like, saying much. Just like the way he like he's like the glances he gives him. Like Timothy Chalamet is basically like, you will kneel down. Like he, he's like, you're going to kneel down before me. And Timothy Chalamet is like, I'm not going to kneel to you. And Christopher Walken looks so like, ugh, like I can't believe this like 15 year old kid is talking to me like this. He just, yeah. looks, he looks so disgusted. And it, it's like such a, a great, like it's it, like, this is one of his more subtle performances. And it, it's, it's a reminder that yeah, Christopher Walken, while he can be like big and hammy and over the top, he can still be like a really subtle actor. And it's great to just watch him do that. Like it reminded me of like his work in, um, Catch Me If You Can, which is like one of his best performances where he plays DiCaprio's father. And he's just mm-hmm. like this 
this guy who's just sort of like beaten. Like it's not the characters aren't the same, but the the performance is similar, and it's very like it's a subtle, quiet performance. And so it's like if all you think of when you think of Christopher Walken is that voice. Remember, he can do more. He's a, he's he's a he's a great actor, and I I love that. I you know I wish he had more to do here, but I love every scene. Every scene he's in, I was just like, yeah, hell yeah, give me more of this. So I'm sure you've seen the um, the news cycle about Denis Villeneuve going around basically being like, dialogue, who needs it? Not me. Yeah. Uh, you know, that <laughs> whole vibe. Um, and and if this movie was, he's basically saying like, he he's a, a filmmaker who likes to tell stories with images, right? Like that, his, his visuals are the things that he leans on the most. And I think if he were able to make this movie that way, I think Christopher Walken would have been perfect casting for the role of the emperor, who is this sort of like, almost like a sad old man. He's not, he doesn't seem overly powerful, but he still is able to bring that gravitas and that sort of seriousness to the role. I just thought it was a little weird that when he did open his mouth, he did kind of still sound like he wasn't going full walking, but like he didn't, he didn't dial it back a ton. I thought, because like we've seen Christopher Walken be, uh, like completely against type and sort of like out of that mode before I'm thinking of um, severance on Apple TV plus. Did you see the first season of that? Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that is a, an example of like walk in doing the opposite of full walk in, whatever that is, you know, like the, the big sort of bombastic uh, vocal um, uh, fireworks and stuff that you often think of with him. And this, I thought it was like a, a step up from that. Like you got a little bit more than that. And it, it did, I, I don't know. I found myself like a little bit distracted at some of the delivery, even though it's not, you know, it's not an over the top performance at all. Um, I just found myself being like, huh, okay. They they really let him do that, huh? Okay, all right, that, that's fine. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I, I guess I wasn't like as, um, as like, uh, I don't know, maybe like, emo- it didn't resonate with me quite as emotionally, but I still like appreciate him as, as a performer and think he was good casting overall. I just like, um, maybe he didn't disappear quite into the role as much as, as he did for you, but, um, okay. So let's get into some highlights of this movie. Are there, I just like wrote down a handful of images that stuck out to me that I just thought were like either cool as hell or just like things that, uh, that really felt memorable about this movie. Um, the first thing is very, very early in the movie, the opening scene where the Harkonnens attack, where they're, they basically like turn on their little, uh, jet packs and they're, they're kind of like, they get dropped off in the desert and they're looking for Paul and his people and, uh, and, or the, the Fremen really, they don't even know Paul is alive at this point. And they like turn on their jet packs and they're like fly up the side of that little, you know, mountain region right in the middle of the desert. And then they get picked off one by one and they're just like falling off and hitting the ground really hard, just like hurtling through the air. And I was like, man, this is so like, uh, visceral and effective. Like what a great way to open this movie. So, um, yeah. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that scene in particular? That's great. It's a great, it's great staging. It's great. Um, it's just a, it's an alarming sequence. Cause every time someone like hits the ground, you're just like, Oh my God. Like, even though you don't want, you don't care about those characters because they're, they're the villains. It's just like, yeah. Jesus Christ. It's like, <laughs> Like, yeah, it's it's a great like early. I don't know. He's he's very good at staging these sort of things. Like they're very good. He's very good at spectacle. And like every time there's like a big moment like that, it's just like, damn, this is really well done. It, I I feel like he struggles with quieter moments. But like anytime it's like a big moment like that, it rules. It, it's really cool. 
Yeah, the other, um, we were talking earlier about like what the movie did well, and I wrote down action. And the moment that sticks to mind uh, or comes to mind in that, um, you know, un- under that umbrella, if you will, is the moment where uh, basically there's like a sneak attack on that giant uh, spice harvester kind of thing. And like Paul and Chani are running and trying to stay in the shadows of its leg as it's moving around. And they're like diving, you know, back and forth and trying to like take out these uh, dragonfly thopter kind of things that are trying to shoot people down. And it's just like, what a great set piece. It just feels like, you know, exciting and alive and just like a really, um, I don't know, just like a really interesting, interestingly filmed uh, like blockbuster movie scene. You know, it just, it kind of feels like, I'm just like sitting in the theater, like pumping my fist. Like, this is what I paid to see kind of thing. Like, you know, this is, it just feels like a lot of movies promise stuff like that and don't really deliver. And this movie, it just felt like it delivered in all the ways that I wanted it to. So I I just wanted to give that, that moment a shout out. Um, Anything stand out to you, Chris, that, you know, uh, an image or a a shot or anything like that? Really? I already mentioned it, but it's really that shot near the end or the big final battle where the, all three of the sandworms, there's like three sandworms, not all three, but there are three sandworms that like come out of, of the, the, the sand or the, the, it's like a sandstorm and they chase mm-hmm. after the, the emperor's guards. And it's so, it's, it's like, for lack of a better word, it's scary. Like it made my like heartbeat faster. I was like, this is like, I just like it, you get that feeling that like if you saw this, you're you would like shit yourself basically <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in terror. Like oh my god, like Jesus, like giant sandworms and they're like roaring. And it's just like oh my god, this is very frightening. And it's like so like uh, he's uh, Villeneuve is very good at, at, at like scary stuff. Like the, there's the uh, that opening of. Um, Sicario, where like they find all the bodies in the wall, and like mm-hmm. then the, the, that shed explodes. I just remember like when I saw Sicario in the theater, like that whole opening sequence had me like on edge. I was just like, Jesus Christ, I feel like uncomfortable. So he's really good at like conveying fear so much so that like, I really want him to make like a full blown horror movie because he hasn't really done it. Like his movies have like horrific stuff in them, like mm-hmm. Prisoners has like horrific stuff in it. But I really want like a full like balls to the wall horror movie because I think it would be like all very nerve rattling and that's what I want. So like, yeah. yeah. Did you see enemy, uh, his movie from, oh, that's right. That, I guess you could count that as horror. Yeah. That's like, it's horror esque. Yeah. yeah that's like a that's psychological another, thriller kind of thing. But yeah, that's another good example where it's just like, I feel very disturbed by this. So he's really good at just like making disturbing imagery. So I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I was also good at, at showing me things that I've never seen before. And the ink spot looking fireworks on the Harkonnen home planet. I was like, I've never seen this before. This is, this is really cool. Um, just like that whole, uh, Jacob came in and talked about it a little bit on the podcast yesterday. Like the look of the Harkonnen home planet where, um, Austin Butler's character fights in that giant arena and how it's all like, it seems like it's basically just a black and white movie because I think they have like a black sun or something like that. Um, and just the, the way that the fireworks looked, I was just like, this is like an inventive new thing that I've never seen. It's just a little detail that nobody ever comments on, but it's just Villeneuve and his team giving us something we've never seen before. So I just appreciated that. Um, yeah. I, we didn't really mention Austin Butler. What did you think about him in this movie? He's good. I like that he's doing a Stellan Skarsgård impersonation. I think that's that's fun. Um, I do think I don't know if I'm like sold on him yet as an actor. I think he's great in Elvis. He was really good in Elvis. But like, I watched that show. I reviewed the show Masters of the Air, which I did not like at all. The show was just boring, and his performance is really blah in that. 
Um, he he's a little better in this, but I don't know if I'm quite sold on him yet. I need to see more of his work because like all I've seen him in is Elvis, Masters of the Air, and now this. So oh, I guess I saw him in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood too, where he plays uh, one of the. Oh yeah. yeah, and he's he's okay in that, but that's like such a small like ah. Eh. So like I don't know. I'm not quite sold on him yet. And I didn't quite buy him in this. Like he's, it's not a bad performance. It's just, it's very, it's very like mannered. It's a very like showy. Yeah, sort of, like, yeah. Like, I was thinking the same thing. It's it's kind of a tough role for anybody to play. But when when it's not matched up perfectly with the cast, it kind of like all of the um the negative aspects kind of like come out in the highlights a little bit. And it, yeah. I just I kind of felt like, yeah, like maybe I don't believe this character or something and like maybe it has to do with a little bit of the makeup and and the prosthetics and stuff that he's wearing um and yeah yeah, like maybe he's just like not quite seasoned enough to be able to like feel as comfortable as as i thought he could have in that role i don't know i think believability is the word there because i totally buy stellan skarsgård's performances i buy him as this gigantic floating weird guy <laughs> like <laughs> like i don't want i don't look at him even like buried under that, all that makeup and i'm not like i'm not convinced like i completely buy him as this like perverted weirdo yeah and i didn't quite buy austin butler as this guy like i just didn't quite i feel like it's also a really i i, I wanted more of the character like he feels very like they set him up to be like the new big bad and he just sort of like doesn't do a lot he just sort of like hangs out in the, like after his big introduction scene he, he really doesn't do much. He just hangs out until the very, very end where he has the big knife fight. So it's like, I don't know. I, I guess I was expecting him to have a more threatening presence. And like, he doesn't really, I mean, you know, that would make the movie even longer. And I don't think it needs to be longer. Yeah. <laughs> but I just, I, I don't know. I was expecting like something more from that character. Yeah, I thought, the, you know, he did pretty well with the physicality and the fights and stuff like that. You know, whatever version of that he actually did. I'm sure there were some stunt people involved um, as well. But uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much on the same page with you there. Um, the reveal that, uh, speaking of, of the Baron, uh, of Stellan Skarsgård's character, the reveal that Lady Jessica is Baron Harkonnen's daughter. I, I totally forgot about that from the book. And so that was like a surprise anew to me in the theater. Um, very much a like, you know no, I am your father, Darth Vader kind of moment. It's like, uh, yeah, there's another thing that Star Wars probably swiped in some capacity uh, from yeah. from Dune. Um, I just thought it was like pretty effective, even though you don't really get, you know, I, I, maybe ideally I would have liked more um, from both uh, Jessica and the Baron in terms of like what that reveal means for those characters and how they feel about it all these years later and stuff like that. And the movie just doesn't really have time to get into that. Um but I, I thought it was an effective reveal anyway. And then uh, Paul riding the sandworm for the first time, man. Like, talk about a great blockbuster scene. Like, when he's just out there, uh, you know, on the the edge of that gigantic sand dune and uh, he's framed from behind and you see the, the, you know, all of the sand coming up in the deep, deep distance for this, like, gigantic thing. And you cut yeah. back to Stilgar and all these people being like, oh, my God, not, like, not that big. You know, there's, yeah. there's this huge one coming. And uh, even though, you know, it is, like, very much a white savior moment of like oh this white boy is coming out here and riding a sandworm that's bigger than <laughs> anyone's ever seen before kind of thing yeah. you, you know you kind of like roll your eyes at that a little bit but at the same time it's just like so visceral and so cool and like so well staged and uh, i thought the visual effects in this movie were pretty amazing and uh and uh the, the way that it like incorporated cg and all that so um i just thought it was like a really really 
cool blockbuster scene, very effective. Um, did did that scene stand out to you at all? Yeah, I thought that was great. Any really, anytime they show the sandworms, I'm just like, this is great. We need more sandworms in these movies. I, don't know. I do like that the sandworms sort of become like Uber, and they're just like hop hop and rise on sand. Yeah. Every time they have to go anywhere, like we gotta go over here. Like let's all get on the sand. Like how? <laughs> Like I, they, they make it look so difficult. And then they have like scenes where like 40 people are just hanging out in the, there's like a tent on yeah. the sand where it's like, what, how, how did they, how did they pitch a tent on the sand where I <laughs> like, so I do, I do, like, I do feel like that, like, I don't want to say like is unbelievable because like, this is a movie with giant sandworms, anything's on the table, but it, it is kind of weird that like they make it look like just hitching a ride for one guy is difficult, but then they yeah. have like, 40 people just chilling on the back of a worm. Like, all right, I guess it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. And I guess like they're the, the worms are like uh, aware that people are on them. So they don't make the mistake of diving underground and like killing yeah, like, everyone. Or like, so, the, I, I guess the worms are like, okay with this. Like, they're like horses, I guess. They're like, whatever. Get, yeah. I guess, guess like, this is going to happen. Whatever. Yeah, if you see, like in an uh, in avatar or something, you've got like the character, the Navi characters, like um, you know, essentially mind melding with the creatures that they're riding. So like, you know, there, there's a bond there. And this just kind of seems like almost like the sandworms, like barely even know that there's people on the back of them. So yeah, uh, yeah, just a, an amusing thing there. Um, I, I wrote down like the entire third act as a highlight, which you've mentioned and, and you highlighted in your review as well. It's just like <laughs> everything coming together and like all of those explosions and everything. I mean, it's just like, yeah, top tier, uh, like blockbuster filmmaking shit, you know? So, and it's upset. Um, it's like an upsetting third act like, to go back to what I said, like at the beginning of the show, it's just like, it's, it's a really, it's not like a hell yeah. Third act. It's like, Oh, everything is upsetting. Third act. Like everything is, everything is falling into place, but it's falling into a place in a really bad way. And like, I, I just find that very unique for like a blockbuster. Like it's, yeah. you, don't, you don't really get a lot of blockbuster. Like, if you, I guess you could think of it as like if this is the third, the second part of a trilogy, you could think of it as like you know, The Empire Strikes Back, where it ends on down note. But I don't know, like, who, you know, they haven't really confirmed that third movie is happening yet. It has mm-hmm. not been announced yet, so who knows when and if we'll get it. Yeah, I think Villeneuve has said he wants to incorporate some elements of Dune Messiah, which is another one of the books in the series. And um, my understanding is that he wants to wait like several years before making another movie and like returning to the story. I want to say I read that um, that the second book picks up like 12 years after the events of the first book or something. I doubt he'll wait that long in, you know, in real time. But um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't find out that this is announced for a long time. It seems like something that they wouldn't announce if he was going to wait, you know, five or six years to make it or something. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I, like, I guess if the story ends here, uh, especially on that shot of Chani in the desert, you know, basically like going off by herself, like, do you consider that a satisfying, w- would you consider that a satisfying ending to this iteration of, of the Dune story? I get, you know, it's so, man, I don't know. Like it does, it, again, it bugs me that it's like, it's not really a cliffhanger, but it's not like. everything's not as definitive not, as it could be. Yeah. Like all the characters, like, I guess that it makes, it, it make to the film's credit, it makes sense. It's not like they're forcing it. Like, you know, it makes sense that she would go off on her own. And it makes sense that Paul would become this, you know, uh, dictator for lack of a better word like it all makes sense to the, the way the characters are moving like it's it, it's it's satisfying in that way but it's also very it's also like well what the hell happens now we gotta wait a few de- you know we gotta mm-hmm. wait a decade or <laughs> to find out like how long is this war gonna last how many people you know what's gonna happen to these characters 
I get, you know, on one level, I guess it's a good thing to make me want to come back for more, but I just really wish movies had endings, man. Like, I yeah. just, like, like, give me a, give me a, a full movie. Like, you know, that's all I want. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, is there any, uh, I guess, other aspect of Dune Part 2 that we didn't touch on here that you wanted to highlight or shout out or anything like that before we wrap it up? I love the music. I love Hans Zimmer's score. Like in the first movie, I love that one too, but it's just like big and loud and, and filled with all these weird drum beats and stuff like that. I like that a lot. The score is good. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about the Andy Taylor joy cameo. Like I know like that's become like a thing. Um, I, I, for one thing, I appreciate how long they kept that a secret. Like, you know, I feel like that would have come out earlier. So it's, like, yeah. it's kind of impressive. But it's also like, I, it's such like a quick thing that like, I wonder how many people are going to like even notice it. Like if you're not looking out for it, cause it's, it's a really blink and you'll miss it sort of cameo. And it's like, I don't know even what that means. Like if you don't, if you haven't read the books, like I haven't, you're not going to really understand like what is even going on there. So I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that. Yeah, I guess it's just meant to be, you know, Paul's sister, uh, the the baby that is still inside right. Lady Jessica, who's grown up and and is sort of like talking to him, sort of across time almost, because Jessica drank the the that blue water that the came warm out of juice. The, yeah, the warm juice kind of stuff, and like they didn't realize that she was pregnant, so it sort of like sped along the baby's uh, mental cycle in a way that they have like a tel- uh, telepathic connection now and all that. So um, yeah, I mean, like what exactly are we supposed to take away from that's the only time that we see Anya Taylor-Joy and literally that one shot? I'm not really sure. Um, but uh, but yeah, I thought it was like a nice little moment if they were gonna if they were gonna uh, cast somebody to play that role it was like oh yeah hey her she's distinctive she looks like she could live in, in this uh, bizarre yeah. you know year 10,000 universe kind of thing so <laughs> um, yeah cool all right well yeah uh, I guess that'll do it I'm, we're gonna be publishing a ton of stuff about Dune part two this is probably gonna be one of the biggest movies of the year um, and and it's one of my favorite right now I'm not sure like you know how it all shake out but uh, I, I'm glad that this movie I'm glad that we that it was worth the wait basically this movie got delayed a bunch of times and um and i'm glad that it's finally out and uh i hope it performs well we're recording this on friday morning so i have no idea how it's going to perform financially but uh yeah the fingers crossed we'll we'll um you know come back and, and talk about how it's doing and all of that and uh maybe there will be who knows maybe they will announce a sequel uh sometime in the in the coming days but um stay tuned to slashfilm.com and this podcast for more you can find much more about dune part two at slashfilm.com uh you can let's see slashfilm.com is or i'm sorry slashfilm daily is published every weekday bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and tv as well as deeper dives into the great features that you can find on the site you can subscribe to the show on apple overcast spotify wherever you get your podcasts Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailback topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help us out a lot. Tell your friends about the show any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all next week.